Father, we have celebrated you today as the God who sees, the God who knows us, the God who watches over us, the God who's with us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Emmanuel. Thank you, Spirit of Truth, that you live in us and abide with us. And Lord, I pray that the same Spirit that breathed these words and carried along those who wrote them down, I pray, Lord, as we look into your Word today, that your Spirit will indeed take the truths that are uh, centuries old, millennia old, and I pray that you would freshly apply them to our hearts even this day. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen. The year was 1947, and Francis Schaeffer, the Christian philosopher and apologist, was on a transatlantic flight, and two engines on the right side of the plane, on one of the wings, stopped running. The plane began to descend. It was very obvious to the passengers that there was something significantly wrong. And at one point, the pilot came on the speaker and said, Passengers, it's time to put your life preservers on. We're facing an emergency situation. They were anticipating a crash land into the ocean. And so Schaefer did what I would hope you and I would do, although I think in our day and age, people probably would have pulled out their cell phones, they start recording, they're starting to call people. I don't know what all we would have done, but at that time, 1947, that wasn't an option. And so Schaefer began to earnestly pray. About the time the plane was about to hit the water, both engines started again. And the plane resumed normal operation. And so after the plane safely landed, Schaefer was listening to the pilot make some comments after that flight. And he said things like, it was so rare, very rare, he said, for two engines. I mean, one maybe, but two engines on the same wing to stop. He says that's very unlikely. He said, but it's even more unlikely that once both engines have stopped, that they would ever start again. And the pilot said, I don't understand it. He says, I can't make, it doesn't make any sense to me how those engines could have restarted. And Schaefer said, well, I can explain it. Pilot said, oh yeah? What's your explanation? And Schaefer said, my father in heaven started it because I was praying. Now Schaefer took that incident and he wrote about that later on in life and he tried to, to make a point. And here's the point he's trying to make in terms of a challenge that we face. He said, seeing the world as a Christian does not mean just saying, quote, I believe in the supernatural world, unquote, and then stopping. It is possible to be saved through faith in Christ and then spend much of our lives acting and thinking like a materialist, a person who doesn't think that there is a God. We can, say in, we, we can say we believe in a supernatural world and yet live as though there is no supernatural in the universe at all. Christianity is not just a mental assent to certain doctrines that are true. This is only beginning, he said. This would be rather like a starving man sitting in front of great heaps of food and saying, I believe in food exists 
I believe that that food is real. And yet, he would never eat the food. It's not enough merely to say, I am a Christian, and then practice to live as if your present contact with the supernatural was something that was far off and something that was strange. He says, many Christians I know seem to act as though they come in contact with the supernatural, that is, with God, just twice in their life. Once when they're justified, and once when they become a Christian, and once when they die. And the rest of the time, they act as though they are a materialist. So I want to begin this morning with a question. Do you believe in God? If so, what kind of God do you believe in? And if that God is truly, truly exists, my question is, what kind of impact does a belief in that kind of God, the true God, what does it make in your daily life? Do you affirm certain, certain truths about God, but deny those truths by the way in which you live? Do you know God, or do you merely know about God? I'm starting, I hope and pray, this summer, Lord willing, a new series of sermons. And the series is really going to be devoted to looking at and thinking through the attributes of God. And the first characteristic I wanted to consider is one that I had done some homework on a couple weeks ago, and I felt like I didn't finish what I wanted to share. And so if you'll bear with me, I'd like to consider and sort of jump off of Matthew 28 verse 20, in which we notice the last words that Jesus uttered at the end of Matthew's gospel was, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we're going to look this morning and consider God's omnipresence. And in doing so, I'd like us to follow three main points in your outline, if you're following along in your outline. And the first point is the reality of God, the God who is present. If you'll turn in your Bible, we're going to look at a verse here in just a second. Jeremiah 23, 23rd chapter of Jeremiah. It's on page 930 in your pew Bible. I'd like you to have that open in front of you. Before I read the verse, I want us to think a little bit about the times in which these words were written. In the ancient Near East, there were many who were teaching at that time about a number of gods that existed, the gods of the Canaanites, as it were, were thought to be gods who were aloof, gods who were distant, gods who had very little contact with human beings. Matter of fact, I came upon this quote by one scholar. He said, The mythology of the ancient world understood the gods to be involved in a variety of activities similar to those that engage human beings. In other words, just like we've recently been on vacation, the gods would go on vacations. Uh, We we get distracted and get to talking about something, and we're unaware of something else going on. That's what these gods were like. And you say, well, is there any evidence of that in Scripture? And sure enough, if you look at the account of Elijah, who's on top of Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 19, he speaks of Baal, not merely to point to make fun or make light of this kind of God named Baal, the God of the storms, but he's quoting their own teachings about Baal. And he says, you know, this Baal that you're trying to get his attention, 
He perhaps is occupied. He's away on a journey. Maybe he's asleep, which was common for those kinds of gods. And so the people of that day assumed that their gods, whether it was Baal or Ashtoreth, which is a female god, or Dagon, the god of the the Philistines, that these gods were remote. They were never thought of as a god who would be nearby. And what a stark contrast to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is presented to us again in the pages of Scripture, Jeremiah 23, in his insistence that he's not like the gods worshipped by all these other people around uh, the Israelites. And he says in Jeremiah 23, look what God says about himself. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord? And not a God far off? He's asking a rhetorical question. The answer, obviously, is yes, you're a God who's near because you are Yahweh. You're the God who... And then he says, to make it very clear, look at verse uh, 24. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares Yahweh? You see, here... It's clear that God is not a God who is just in one place, or a God who gets distracted and goes from one place to another place. It's clear that God is everywhere at once. As one theologian wrote, God is present with his whole being in every part of space. God is present with his whole being in every part of space. That's what we mean when we say God is omnipresent. He is not confined to a temple or a worship center. He is not confined to one location. He is everywhere at once. I like to use the fancy word just to throw around a fancy word because it's a good word. He is ubiquitous. Ubiquitous means everywhere. God is everywhere. He is, indeed, that's what Paul preached in Athens when he spoke to these people who were worshiping all sorts of gods. And he said, listen, I'm going to present to you a God that you have Uh, worshiping you don't even know who he is he says we live and move and exist in god he's everywhere now in making that affirmation i want to make a very clear clarification the bible is not affirming when it says that god is everywhere or that he dwells in the heavens and the earth it is not teaching the concept of pantheism pantheism letter b That's not what the Bible is teaching. Pantheism believes that everything is God and that God is everything that exists. You see, the Bible affirms that God is present everywhere in His creation while remaining distinct from His creation. That's a very important distinction to understand. And that's why God, I believe, so passionately detests and He hates the idolatrous fashioning of a graven image to represent himself. That's one of the Ten Commandments. I hope that sounds a little clearer or familiar to you. Do not make a graven image, God said to his people. And such carved images are wrong because, and primarily because, they portray God as one who is located only in one place and that God must be transported from one place to another.
Got to keep praying for poor Dakota. Let me just go back and make that statement again. When we're talking about the uniqueness of God and why it's wrong to create a graven image, what we're saying here is that if you create a graven image that represents the true and the omnipresent God, and you place that image in a particular locality, what you're saying is the God is located only at that place because we see it, and therefore this represents him. And it fashions him and depicts him as if he's very limited and only in this one particular locality. But numerous times in the scriptures, we, are, we read the affirmation that God cannot be confined to one place or one temple or one room or one particular locality. First Kings chapter 8, I would suggest to you, is a good text that teaches that again and again. Now, some people, even though the Bible makes this very clear, are reticent to believe in this understanding of God's omnipresence. We know that there are many skeptics in this world, and they insist, of course, that God is not near. And other people would say, well, God is a God who exists, but we would think that he is so transcendent. He is so holy and and lifted so high as a God He is so far away that he's removed from creation up in heaven. He has nothing to do with what's happening down here on earth. Or others who have a hard time even believing there is such a thing as a God. Atheists uh, are known to be people who, of course, deny God's existence. And uh, I came across the story about an atheist who wrote on a chalkboard with a piece of chalk. He wrote this. He says, God is nowhere. And later on, a student came by who happened to be a Christian, and he realized that that could be tweaked a little better. And so he rewrote the phrase below, and he said, God is now here. Just by putting a space in there. God is now here. Instead of God is nowhere, God is now here. It's a big difference in your way of looking at existence, huge, huge implications. You get a small change with a space between a couple of letters. Admitting, admittedly, we must say that there are times which we must confess that God's presence is not always apparent. Even I will admit that to you. It's clear, it's hard to, to say where is God when things are extremely horrendous and evil and when there's so many things that go on that are Uh, so wicked in the world. But I assure you, even on the cross, God was there. And so there's a sense in which we do affirm that God is now here. So it goes back to the basic question I started with, what's your view of God? Do you believe that God, the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God, do you believe He is near and that He is everywhere present? Do you affirm that fact about God? Say, okay, I, I grant you that. But do you live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday in such a way as if God is sort of distant? He's remote from what's happening in your life and your existence. He's uninvolved in your life. He's uninvolved in the world that He's created. Is God, in your mind, only found in this building once a week? I would hope not. If that's the way you live, then what kind of conception of God do you have? 
Or is God the God who is in your car on the LIE? Is God the God who is on the train when you're riding the train? Is God the God where you uh, are in the backyard enjoying your swimming pool? Is God the God who is with you in your home, in your bedroom? He's anywhere you go. That's the true God. I want to suggest that the God who is omnipresent is reality. And we need to sort of get our hearts and our minds and begin to sort of acquaint ourselves and become people who have embraced that is more than just something we think about and say, yes, I agree with the concept. We must then ask ourselves, do we truly believe it? God is present everywhere. I would suggest, again, reading Psalm 139 is a great way to start to get you to meditate and reflect on that. I want to look now at the second point here. Point number two, the life situations when God promised to be present. Now, you need to put your seatbelts on this section, okay? We're going to really be taking this fairly quickly, quicker than some of you wish. But I wanted to get through as many of these, and this is why I've tried to devote another sermon to this. Because I've taken the time to look at as many times that God has said to his people, I am with you always. Or I am with you. I am with you. I will be with you. And I noticed that as God emphasized his nearness, as he emphasized his presence with individuals and with his people again and again and again, he did so in true historical life situations. Not, not in some theological a, a class that someone's taking in a classroom somewhere up in the talking about just uh, theological concepts. It was done in the context of real life, real challenges, real problems, real people. And so I want us to go through these real quickly. I put some, many of them in your notes. It's a treasure trove of verses that affirm God's presence. And these assurances, I'm, I'm convinced, were given by God to encourage the people who heard them, to comfort those who needed to hear those words and those who needed to be emboldened with God's assurance and presence. As A.W. Tozer wrote, that great pastor of the 40s and 50s, he said, we need never shout across the spaces to an absent God. He is nearer than our own soul, closer than our most secret thoughts. That's how close God is. Well, look at these situations and circumstances that God insisted he is with his people. Number one, he was with uh, those who are overwhelmed by a challenging task. Ever been asked by God to do something that just overwhelms you? you? Feel like you just say, "I feel like throwing my hands up." There's no way. Matthew twenty-eight verse twenty: Disciple all the nations, all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. He says, "I am with you always, even to the end of the age." We looked at that. How about the time when God said to Moses, Moses who had murdered someone and runs away in fear, having been raised as an Egyptian in the courts of Pharaoh, is told by God, the same Jehovah, Yahweh, says, okay, Moses, you've had your 40 years out here in the wilderness. You've been tending those sheep. I want you to go back and I want you to speak to Pharaoh and say to him that you are going to lead the people, children of Israel out of bondage. Moses is like, me? Me? You've got to be kidding me. I'll give you 16 reasons why I can't do that. You should read the text. It's in Exodus chapter 3. What does God say to him? I will be with 
you. It's powerful. Every time, every, every challenge that Moses had along those 40 years of wandering the wilderness, I wonder how many times that word re- echoed through his mind, I am with you. He had huge problems, overwhelming tasks. Now we could also look number two at the challenge that was facing someone who's intimidated because they know they're facing tremendous opposition and resistance. That was certainly true of the Apostle Paul. As we looked at it previous weeks, Acts chapter 18, verse 10. Paul, in a vision, even though he had been opposed by his fellow Jews, it got more intense and more, uh, more outrageous as the riots got worse. He'd been beaten. He'd been thrown in jail time and time again. He's like, how many times do I have to do this every town I go into? So what does Jesus say to him? Do not be afraid any longer, Acts 18.10. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I am with you. To Jeremiah, who's given a task in which he's told from the beginning, Jeremiah, I want you to speak this message. It's not going to be popular. They're not going to like what you have to say. I want you to say it anyway. Jeremiah's like, oh man, why do I have to be born? Why do I have to exist? Come on, give me a break here. You're going to make this a lifetime assignment for me? And what does God say to him? Knowing that he's going to be strongly offensive in what he's going to say. He's going to offend person after person after person who hears his message from God. This is what God says to him. Do not be afraid of them, God says, for I am with you to deliver you. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. You ever face strong resistance? It's nice to know God's with us. Number three, how about a time you face fear? Uh, anybody face fear? Uh, that's a real problem for me. Times in which we're afraid, we're frightened by circumstances. Sometimes they seem as though those circumstances have spun out of control. Listen to what God said through his prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you. Number four, how about a situation in which, in reflecting upon the sheep that he used to tend. See, David now was a a person that watched sheep. He learned many insights in watching those sheep and the interaction of those sheep with him, the shepherd. And he looked at those sheep, he reflected on how God is his shepherd, and he said, listen, as those sheep would be calmed when when the shepherd was among them, He said, David says, I'm going to celebrate the fact that when I face death, when I face dangerous situations in which I'm not sure I'm going to survive, he says, I am thankful to know that you're with me. You're my shepherd. You're not going to abandon me like the false and phony shepherds who will run away from a bunch of sheep when there is a wild animal that's about to attack them. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What does it say? For... You are with me, or King James, thou art with me, right? Those of us who learned that years ago. What a difference it makes when you face the prospect of dying. And some of you in your Asian life, you know it's not going to be long till you die. What a great comforting word. We don't know, any of us know how long those days might be. Number five, 
When Paul attempted to prescribe a remedy for his fellow believers in Philippi who had become overwhelmed and overcome by this issue of anxiety, they were worried, worried, and worried. What does Paul write to them? Does he say, just stop worrying, period? I mean, he did say, don't worry about anything. He did say that. But he certainly couches it with two important principles on either side of that particular command. First of all, he says in Philippians 4, verses 5 and 6, he says, The Lord is near. Wow, think about that for a moment. You think that would help your anxious thoughts? If you knew that Jesus is right there with you, are you going to get all upside, uptight and all out of control, worrying, 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 what's going to happen? Jesus is right here. Paul says, the Lord is near. Then he says, don't worry about anything. And he says, what? Pray about everything. Tremendous practical assistance for those of us who struggle with anxiety and worry. Number six, what about when you're fearful about the future and you're concerned about facing change? You're going from one phase of life into another phase of life where you ever, never have had to do that before. This is something new, something different, something that's a little challenging, intimidating, unnerving. Well, Joshua's that way. Joshua's been wandering under the leadership of Moses now for 40 years in the wilderness, and now he's getting ready to where he has to take them in, and they've got to face the fact that they have many enemies and conquer these cities. And so what does God say to him? Joshua 1.5, Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Moses had preached the same thing numerous times. That's the verse we've been trying to memorize this month, right? Joshua 1.9. Folks, when you are afraid of the future, you need to say that verse to yourself again and again and again until you believe it, until it begins to really sink down into the reality that that is what is true. God is with us. Number seven. You say, well, life sometimes throws me lots of problems. Many forms of affliction. Various trials that really seem to overtake me and cause a train wreck of my life. You know, God speaks to that in ways that are so helpful. He says in Isaiah chapter 43, When you pass through the waters, not if, but when you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And through those rivers, as you pass through those, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Do not fear, for I am with you, he says. He doesn't say, I'm with you. You know I'm with you when you have no problems. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm with you in the middle of your problems. That's a huge difference. Some of us assume that because I'm having problems, God's turned his back and he's about three miles away, got distracted with somebody else's problems. No, he's right here with you in the middle of your problem. Number eight. In the promise that a kid is coming through, a uh, very interesting in passage in Hebrews chapter 13, it was clear that among those believers, they were struggling with some persecution. They were feeling like it's easier to go back to what we used to believe in our Judaism and just not embrace all this thing about a Messiah who died on a cross. And so many of them are afraid that they're going to suffer loss. They're afraid that they're going to face the fact that God is not going to be there for them. And they're afraid, ultimately, of financial disaster. Financial shortfall is what's gripping their hearts. And so the writer of Hebrews says, listen, I want you to speak to that. I want, to, I want you to know, don't just be greedy and think that you have to have more and more. He says, learn to be content. 
Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your life be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For God himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Isn't that an interesting combination between a person who's afraid about finances and the assurance that God is not going to abandon you, he'll be with you. Very interesting. And God has repeatedly reminded his people, you are not alone. I am with you in those circumstances when you feel alone or when you feel abandoned. In every situation in life, in every place, in every age, God is with his people. Now, what hardships are you facing? What challenge in terms of your response to the situations you find yourself in do you identify with in that list of one through eight? Let me encourage you. Feed your heart and your mind upon those promises day after day after day. Read them again. Not once, not twice, but read them over and over again. Memorize them. Don't just give a casual mental assent and say, yeah, I know, Jesus, you said you're going to be with me, and then walk off into the ongoing problem and the same response of fear and and anxiety and greed and despair, but claim those promises, and the God who's made those promises, say to yourself, He is the real God. He is the real deal. He's not going to go back with these promises and trust Him. If He says He's with you, then you're not alone. What a huge difference that would make in how we deal with life every day. If we really believe that. If we really believed it and really trusted God. So I think for some of us, it's a call to repent from the idolatry of how we have twisted and don't really believe in the true God as He's revealed Himself. We believe in the God who think we think He's only in certain places and certain situations in life. God's only here if I've only got money in the bank. I can't trust Him anywhere else. I'm only healthy. I can trust God. I know He's with me. But if I've got problems, God's abandoned me. He's far away from me. That's idolatrous thinking about God. So we need to repent of that, trust Him, and claim those promises He is with us. Praise God. Number three. One more practical way of looking at this, the implications of God's promised presence. Now, this idea of God promising that he's near, it comes to us with tremendous sense of blessing. And I, I don't have time to unpack all of these things, but you can meditate on this more as time goes on through the week here. But here's one thing I want us to think about. We are blessed when we think about the truth that God is with us in the sense that we can enjoy unbroken communion with God all the time, anytime and all the time. We cannot see God, it's true, but Psalm 46 says God is a very present help in times of trouble. God is a very present help in times of trouble. Now, you say, if that's true, then why is it, and why is it true of me, why is it true of so many of us, that when we're in trouble... The last thing we do is what? Is pray. You find that? Somehow in our way of thinking, we're like, I've got to think harder about how to solve the problem. I've got to eat more because I'm afraid of what I'm going to You know, whatever. It's like our response is to, you know, we get so worked up, and the last thing we do is pray. I find it interesting, if you really believe that God is near, it, it gets linked with this idea of that I can turn to God immediately with the problem. Immediately. 
every time I'm beginning to feel anxious and fearful, I immediately turn to God. Start talking about my problem, what I'm thinking. Psalm 119, I commend this to you. I found this verse is fascinating. Psalm 119, verse 151. David is writing this psalm and he says, I am so concerned and worried and I'm facing this terrible situation. It keeps me up. I wake up in the morning earlier than I want to wake up. And I do so and I'm crying out to you, God. I wake up early and I'm praying and earnestly seeking your face. And then he says this, Psalm 151. You are near, O Lord. So the idea of his nearness and prayer are obviously tied together. Morning, midday, afternoon, evening, at twilight, and in the wee hours of the night, God is with us. He's ready to hear our prayers. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I've been in a situation where I've needed some help when I was trying to put something together. Years ago, I ordered one of these basketball goals that is uh, portable, it has a base on it, and it has the poles, you know, and the basketball, the basket, uh, backboard and the rim, the whole bit. And uh, have you ever seen one of those things come in a box? Ho, ho, we're talking parts and more parts and parts you can't even imagine how many parts there are in this thing. Uh, bolts and nuts and plastic pieces and metal pipes and whatever. So it's all there. I'm trying to make sense of it all. And I've got this thing halfway put together. It's taking up the whole garage and half of the driveway, and it's everywhere. And I'm panicking because I'm trying to get this thing. My kids are begging me to get this thing. Let's go let's play with this thing. And so I'm almost done. And on this Saturday morning I'm working on it, I realize that the rim is not made properly. It's, it's deformed or it has some sort of major problem with it. It's not able to be used. And they left out one of the parts. I've looked three times through all the stuff. I cannot find it. So they have, call this one number and you can have your problems. If you can't do anything, call us. So I get on the phone and call them. And what do you hear? I'm sorry, our call center is now closed. Please call us at our convenient moments of Monday through Friday. Blah, 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 blah. I wish I could say I responded calmly and said, well, you know, I think I'll call them on Monday. You uh, would not want to know what I was ready to say. But anyway, the point is what? Sometimes when we need help, it's not available. It's remote. It's distant. They're, un- they're way out there somewhere. But God says, I'm with you. So talk to me about it. Tell me what is, what's on your heart. What's your concern about? I'm right here. It's huge. It's such a practical blessing to have this concept brought down to day-to-day life. He is accessible. He is available. He is present at all times. Now, another area of blessing I really want to touch on quickly here is God's nearness is such a blessing is because it can help us in our attempts to resist sin. Now, hear me out here. We all know that we struggle with temptation. Some of us struggle a little more than others, right? Some of us are enjoying temptation, but there are times when we know what it is to struggle in times of temptation. And I've been thinking about Joseph. And I've been rereading the whole account of Joseph and thinking about his, his situation. He is hundreds and hundreds of miles from home. He has no family around, nobody of his background. He is truly alone in terms of a Hebrew among all these Egyptians. And there he is in bondage. And there he is, work, works his way through to the opportunity of this guy named Potiphar. He's working for his boss. He's doing a good job. And Potiphar's 
wife seems attracted to him. And she starts hitting on him. She's flirting with him. She throws herself at him in a, in a figurative sense, maybe in a literal sense. She's urging him on. Now, this guy's a young, red-blooded, Hebrew young man and certainly understands what's involved here. And I find it interesting, in chapter 39 of Genesis, I had never seen this before, prior to his response that says, when she's begging him to go ahead and just, come on, let's, let's, let's have some fun, he says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? Now, how does he have any concern about God when he's, what, hundreds of miles away from the land of promise? He's away from family. He's away from anything that it would have associated. And so look at verse 2 of that chapter, Genesis 39, verse 2. It says what? And the Lord was with Joseph. I think he had an understanding and awareness, and he functioned with an understanding that God was with him, even though he was away from all his people, all his family. God was with him. And when it comes to resisting sin, my friend, children of God are never alone. But part of our vulnerability when we are falling into sin and prone to fall in sin is due in some measure to the fact that we are beginning to think and we're beginning to function as if we are truly alone. Right? That's when temptation is the most effective in us. Because we think, well, nobody's watching here. Not a big deal. It's not something anybody else is going to hold against me here. And so we go ahead and act independent of God and assume that he is not a factor here and that no one else is around. But the omnipresent God can and he will help you in your attempts to be vigilant when you are seeking to not succumb to temptation. For example... How does that work out? Well, suppose you're sitting and you're surfing on the web. And suppose you say to yourself, well, Jesus is sitting right here with me. You ought to put a chair right beside you when you sit down and look at the Internet. Jesus is right here. Do you think you're going to sit there and surf through all the porn? And be as likely to do that if Jesus was sitting right beside you? Or what about the time when you became so irate and frustrated and angry are you going to curse at your wife? Are you going to shout at the kids? All these things. If you knew that Jesus was right there in the room? <laughs> I don't think so. Or even more practical, I would suggest, would you eat an entire container of ice cream? Sitting at the kitchen table or standing beside the refrigerator. If Jesus was standing there with you, watching you. Would you commit fornication and fool around in front of your parents if you're not married? Have sex with some girl or some girl with some guy? Would you do it with your parents sitting there watching? Would you do it with people in your church family sitting there watching? Well, guess what? Jesus is watching. He's the God who's with us, right? Somehow in the way in which we deal with sin, we have somehow come with this concept that we're just sort of operating as if God, what? Doesn't exist. As if I'm a materialist, according to Francis Schaeffer. I'm struggling with the same thing, folks. Proverbs 5.21 says this. 
The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. I challenge you, look up that verse in its context. Proverbs 5. Look it up in the context. What is he talking about in that whole chapter? Sexual purity. You will never become a person who will deal with any measure of victory in your sexual life and purity until you get that concept in your mind that Jesus is right there with you all the time. You can fool anybody. There is no accountability, true accountability, apart from accountability to an all-seeing and all-present God. Now, claiming the promise that Jesus is with us at all times can help us in our attempts to resist sin. Claim it, brothers, sisters. Get that into our thinking and our hearts. It will make a huge difference. Now, hear me on one other thing here. The concept of Jesus' presence with us is, a, is indeed a blessing. There are many more we could list. But there's also it is a promise with a warning. Because God is near, unbelievers have reason to be warned. No one can hide from the presence of God. No one can escape or run away from God. And God is there where no human eye can see. The true story is told of Francis Thompson, who came to the United States, sort of running away from home, running away from family, running away from his whole heritage and all that he was brought up with as he was taught the Christian faith and his mother has prayed for him all these years. He said, I'm out of here. I don't want any part of that stuff. He came from Ireland to the United States. And he says this. Years later, he wrote, he says, I came and he said, Jesus was waiting for me at the pier when I landed in New York. I said, what are you talking about? He didn't see Jesus, by the way, standing there. But what he was saying was, the Lord began to convict him as if he was running, as he was running away from everything, running off into a life in which he wanted to do whatever he wanted to do, didn't care about God. He said the Lord began to what? Convict him and break his proud for heart and began to show him his sin and began to help him understand how much he was loved by God. And he said soon thereafter he was converted and he wrote a poem to express the reflections on these futile efforts that he made to somehow flee from the one that he called the hound of heaven. And I'll take that the wrong way, but what he's saying is what? You can't run away from God. He says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. In other words, the way of my thinking. He said, I just threw him away, dismissed God, didn't even think about him. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and even under running laughter. He just laughed and didn't care about God, but God pursued him. God was the God who's what? Seeks and saves those who are lost. The hound of heaven. Let me tell you, you cannot hide from God. He is the present God. He sent Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, so that he might be what? The one who will rescue you from your sin, who will redeem you, who will give you purpose and restore you. He is the one who is called God with us, Emmanuel. Let me make one other point here. We live in a day when people are doing their best to ignore God's Word. Just give me something to entertain me. Give me something to think about other than having to somehow interact with the Word of God. People have made light of the Word of God. They continually find fault with it. They find many reasons why not to just take it at face value. The same problem was true in Jeremiah's day. Even worse in Jeremiah's day was that the reason people weren't reading the Word of God and weren't listening to what God was saying to them is because there were these people who rose up and said, 
I have a message from God, and I've gotten dreams from God, and this is what God is saying. And they go, blah, 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 blah. And they totally contradict what God is saying, what Jeremiah was saying in the Word. And they said it in such a way in which they said, oh, everything's going to be fine. You're not going to face any kind of disasters because God's with you. The temple still exists, blah, blah, blah. They gave false messages. They deceived so many people. And the people were made to believe it doesn't make any difference what you do because God's not, God is here among us so you can do whatever you want without consequence. So they were living like the devil, even though they claimed to be the people of God. And because they overlooked the Scriptures, they enjoyed a false sense of security. They believed whatever they wanted to believe. And that's our world today, isn't it? People believe whatever they want to believe and ignore what God has said and the warnings of His Word. And that's why Jeremiah confronted him. Here, I'm going right back to the same verse I started with. Jeremiah 23, 23. That's a hard one to remember, isn't it? Jeremiah 23, 23. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him? Answer, no way. No way. Get it out of your mind. It's impossible. And then what does God say? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? That is reality, my friend. We must face it and embrace it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God who is not just transcendent. We know you are. You are so great and mighty. Our puny minds can't fully understand and fathom you. But Lord, you've come down to us. You've created us, every single one of us, and you have chosen to lower yourself and to live among us. In the person of Jesus Christ, And now that Christ has been ascended to heaven in his resurrection body, we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit, another comforter, who ministers to us the abiding presence of Christ everywhere we are, in all the world, no matter where we are or who we are. Father, I pray that you would take some of these simple truths, some of the great promises that, Lord, you've given us time and time and time again in your word. Help us, Lord, to understand these are promises for us as well. Help us, Lord, not to just affirm these things in our mind and say, yes, 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 we know God's everywhere. But, Lord, grip our hearts to truly believe you are the God who's right with us when we're crying, when we're scared, when we're worried, when we're lonely, when we're overwhelmed, or when we feel like we're running our own way. Help us, Lord, to know that you are indeed the God who is present. And Lord, I pray that you might make some powerful changes in our lives. For some of us, that means we need to begin by acknowledging you exist and that you are the true God and that we are not the center of the universe. And therefore, we cannot escape you. We cannot run away from you. We must humble ourselves before you and cry out that you would redeem us, rescue us, and remedy our hearts and begin a mighty work of regeneration in us. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would also help those of us who make this affirmation and maybe have done so for years, but we've been living like materialists who don't even believe in a God. Even though we say we do, Lord, I pray 
May you, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Help us to unpack these truths day by day, this week, tomorrow, this week, and the rest of our lives until Jesus comes. Until that day, Lord, when we literally, with resurrection bodies, we will be with you. And you will be with us in a place where sin does no longer exist. In eternal, unending bliss and joy forevermore. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.